0: Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. I'm your host, Trey Whetstone, coming here from Columbus, Ohio. And today we are moving on to the next and last portion of Godzilla in this third episode of the Kaiju coverage. So today I'm going to be talking about the Godzilla Heisei era and the Godzilla Millennium era, and then further on, pretty much wrapping up everything else with Godzilla after the Showa era. I've got a lot to cover, so we're just going to dive right into this and get started. As a little background, when we last left off, Toho was scrambling to find a way to reinvent the franchise after the box office failure of Terror of Mechagodzilla. A color film remake of the original, titled The Rebirth of Godzilla, was planned for a 1977 release, but was ultimately shelved. I believe Luigi Cozy was actually supposed to have a part in that, but again, that never happened. Next, there were two ideas floated around by UPA Studios who intended to work on co-productions with Toho. Both Godzilla vs. the Devil and Godzilla vs. Gargantua never came to fruition, though. At this point, the series was given back over to its creator, Tomoyuki Tanaka, who was in charge of creating a new film for the original's 25th anniversary in 1979. He was inspired by the Three Mile Island incident and was looking to bring back the darker anti-nuclear elements to the series. He felt they lost the adult audiences when they moved into the more over-the-top crazy movies of the 70s. He was also emboldened by the success of other darker sci-fi, like the King Kong and Invasion of the Body Snatcher remakes and Alien. In 1980, Akira Morale turned in a script called The Resurrection of Godzilla that would be set at an illegal nuclear waste facility and see Godzilla fighting Bacon, which was to be this type of shape-shifting alien monster. This would be cancelled, though, because it was seen as too expensive. Next up, America tried to throw their hat in with Steve Miner wanting his turn he was set to bring in Fred Decker to write a new proposed Godzilla film. Miner was willing to take on the financial risk of the film, but unfortunately it fell through after no U.S. film studio would touch it due to his insistence on stop motion for the monster and 3D effects as well. In a weird turn of events, a group calling themselves the Godzilla Resurrection Committee pressured Tanaka into moving forward with a domestic-only Godzilla film to run alongside Miners. The goal here was to move Godzilla away from his heroic image, so to accomplish this, they made it a direct sequel to the original Godzilla. See, this type of thing has been happening way longer than you think, and it's littered throughout the Godzilla series, as we will find out moving on today in this episode. So, now that brings us to the return of Godzilla, or, you know, Godzilla 1984. Shuichi Nagahara was brought on to write the screenplay. At this point, Miner's film was already cancelled, and Nagahara tried to mix together elements of that film, as well as the abandoned resurrection of Godzilla. Ishiro Honda was their first choice to direct the movie, but he turned it down. He was currently working with Akira Kurosawa on Kagamosha and Ron, but also didn't feel comfortable continuing the series after Aiji Tsuburaya's death. Koji Hashimoto was ultimately the choice for director, and Teriyoshi Nakano was brought on to direct the special effects. He had been the special effects director on Godzilla films since Godzilla vs. Hedera. The decision was made by Tanaka to increase Godzilla's height by around 100 feet or 30 meters due to the increased size of the Tokyo skyline, so that is growing by that much, not total. They would borrow some characteristics that hadn't been used since Godzilla raids again in the design of the new, taller Godzilla, such as giving Godzilla four-toed feet. They also incorporated features to make Godzilla have a sense of sadness about him. And I think that's completely important to grasp the tone, because this is very different than what the latter half of the Showa era was doing. The film released on December 15th of 1984 to coincide with the original's 30-year anniversary. It made 1.7 billion yen at the box office, in Japan, that is, and $14 million worldwide. The film did have an unedited English international version, but that's not the one it's most known for. Due to the lackluster box office returns, Toho made the decision to sell the film internationally. New World Pictures took the bait and created Godzilla 1985. Similar to Godzilla King of the Monsters, The film would undergo major changes, and they even brought Raymond Burr back from the original to kind of do that thing where, you know, they're taking shots of people's backs to insert Raymond Burr into the film. New World originally wanted to bring Leslie Nielsen in and rewrite the dialogue to make it a comedy, but Raymond Burr wasn't having any of that. He made it known that he thought they should take the nuclear metaphor seriously and not try to make this thing a comedy, And my, could you imagine if they did that to make this, like, some kind of screwball comedy? Uh, If you get a chance, go look up online. I think there's some um, bits of dialogue that are left over from that version of that script or whatever they were thinking. And it's kind of insane. And to think that they would try to do that, I mean, maybe it makes sense at the time, but uh, no thank you. I'm so glad that didn't happen, even though, you know, 1985 isn't exactly a masterpiece. It was said they even asked Burr to drink a Dr. Pepper in one scene, and he kind of just glared at them. That's the the anecdote that I read, he just glared at them. There were, however, some Dr. Pepper ad placements in the movie, and Godzilla even appeared in some of Dr. Pepper's commercials at the time. This version was panned by critics, even though the original was well-received. So that's a little bit what I'm talking about. 1985 wasn't exactly a masterpiece that they made, but, uh, you know... It's alright. So let's talk about this movie a little bit. Released in 1984, ran for 103 minutes, and the synopsis reads, After a fishing boat is attacked, the sole surviving crew member realizes it is none other than a resurrected Godzilla. However, efforts to bring the story to light are suppressed by the Japanese government amid growing political tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union who are both willing to bomb Japan to stop the monster. And before I get into anything else, that's kind of a running theme in this. Uh, You know, we've got the U.S. and Russia kind of going at it or the Soviet Union at that point, and there's a very much like a Cold War feel to this, which is cool because that's probably the greatest threat to nuclear war at that time. I can really see where they're coming from there as, you know, the next threat. U.S. dropped the, you know, the H-bomb on... Nagasaki and Hiroshima and that's what they were worried about in 54 like something like that happening again now they're worried about just total annihilation from these nuclear happy nations that were warring at the time so first and foremost these special effects take a major step up in the nine years since we last saw a Godzilla film it's night and day when you look at what's done with these Heisei era films and what was done with the show era films, and the same thing goes for the Millennium films, but not exactly in a good way a lot of the times, and I'll get into that later on. This movie has a lot of similarities to Godzilla 54, I think, and even has some similarities to Godzilla 2000. I mean, there's a lot of focusing on the destruction of the buildings, and the destruction of the cities, and the people at the heart of those. Now, it doesn't have the same level of a story, but wow. Yeah, I do want to say here, you know, those are one of some of the main draws, or the destroying of the cities, I'm going to say. But the reveal, the first time we suspect something is Godzilla out on this fishing boat, it's an incredible scene, and I think they do it so well. This is basically a selective sequel before, like I said, we saw a lot of those. What do I mean by a selective sequel? Well, it ignores everything but the original movie, a la, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022 or Halloween 2018. And you're going to see a lot of that, and my question to that, as we go through all these movies that have done this throughout these next couple of eras, why? Why are we still—I know that the original's loved, but it's done several times where it's like the original's the only thing that happened. Why, when you are choosing to delete everything else that happened in the series, are you leaving the entry in where Godzilla dies? I mean, (laughs) Godzilla is killed by the Oxygen Destroyer at the end of that movie— Why are we leaving that in and trying to figure out, you know, how to play around that? Like, that's something that necessarily doesn't make sense to me because that's one of the leaps of logic when you go to the next Godzilla movie is it's a different Godzilla. Anyway, I I digress there. The soundtrack to this thing is pretty beautiful. Um, I think it just goes over the film well and it really makes it feel, I don't, it gives it this epic scale, almost, that this film has, and, uh, yeah, here, once again, Godzilla is by himself, this is just Godzilla's movie, there's no other monsters that Godzilla's fighting, this was the route they tried to take to revive things, we, you know, the human story, I think, is good enough to get you by, like I said, it's nothing that's going to compare to 1954, and it's nothing too crazy, but it does keep its focus mainly on a few characters, and I feel like it's best when these Godzilla films do that, and they just focus on certain people. It feels very much like a standalone film, and that it's doing its own thing. And I think that's a big, you know, we haven't had one of these since 1975, and we get one in 1984, so there's this big gap that we're talking about, they're trying to revive it in one way or another, but this thing really does feel like it could be its own thing. It doesn't need to have the original Godzilla, it doesn't need to have the films that came after it. The problem is, and I think they set out for that, I don't think they set out to make this into a series, but what we do get is that it <laughs> kind of unintentionally kicks off a series of interconnected Heisei era films, which is something pretty unprecedented when you look at the rest of the Godzilla series. Like the uh, sad Godzilla design would suggest, this film does have a very somber tone. It's not some feel-good Godzilla movie that's going to You know, make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside and give you (laughs) excitement and all this other stuff. I mean, you've got all this destruction. You've got these beautiful images. You've got this great soundtrack and all making for this kind of sad film. And, yeah, you definitely get that vibe. And especially going in through the ending, you just get a, a sadder tone. This one was even better than I thought, than I remember it being. I was very, like, even middle of the road on this the last time I had watched it, and this time it really jumped up for me into where it's maybe a top five, I think, a film. I think it's a powerful movie, and I think it hits a lot of the right notes that some of the other Godzilla sequels would miss on, and even though it didn't do well at the box office, this is definitely one I'd recommend, and I think this is a good place to start. I don't know. This would be an okay place to start the series we're going to get into the Heisei era films here coming up. So let's set this out right now. The Heisei era films have a through line, which is something we really didn't see again in Godzilla films. There's one character in particular that kind of runs throughout the series of films, but throughout these and let's see how many are there. There are 7, 7 of these Heisei films. They're, you know, they're in the same world, the same things are happening and affecting everyone. I mean, these are essentially sequels to each other, and that's something we really didn't see in Godzilla. None of the stories really intertwined. Now, we do have new people every one. It's not like we're having the full cast members, but there are some cast members who make multiple appearances in these movies. And how it connects to the next one in Godzilla vs. Biollante, I mean, they take it straight from the ending of that one and go on to Biollante. And that's something, again, we've never seen before with Godzilla, And we wouldn't really see again with Godzilla, at least not to this point, with the Toho films anyway. So that's, it's cool how it kicks off. You're going to find, when I'm talking about these movies, I am a huge fan of the Heisei-era Godzilla movies. I think these are amazing. I just had such a good nostalgic feeling watching these things over again recently. This is where it's at for me, for Godzilla. They're not all perfect, of course, but I love them. Alright, let's jump over to Godzilla vs. Biolante. Tanaka announced a sequel in 1985, but wasn't sure what the potential was after The Return of Godzilla wasn't successful, and King Kong Lives bombed in the U.S. So, uh, the King Kong remake gave him hope, and then when that sequel came out, it bombed. And kinda muddied the waters. Weirdly enough, it was the success of Little Shop of Horrors that pushed Tanaka forward on the Godzilla series and Nathan Bartlebaugh, I think you'll know what I'm talking about because we had discussed this before I knew this fact, I think that plays well into this movie. They once again held an open script contest with the stipulation that it had to be a monster versus monster film. Tanaka wanted a different direction after the solo outing of Godzilla 1984. Kazuki Amori was the selected director, and he and Tanaka had kind of a strained relationship initially, I know at least, as Amori held Tanaka responsible for the decline of Godzilla in the 1970s. Dentist Shinichiro Kobayashi won the contest. He wrote the script about biotechnology as opposed to nuclear fallout, and for the story's basis, he tried to imagine what would happen if his own daughter was to die. So that's some pretty powerful stuff there, especially for, you know, you got a dentist here (laughs) working overtime to put this Godzilla script together. I do, I think that's, I think it's crazy that you would ship out, you know, they've done this several times, like, give the public a chance to make one of the most beloved film series in your, you know, in your country, give them a chance to do that, but it's, it's kind of weird to do that too, right? Like, (laughs) but it's kind of cool. It's kind of cool that you let them, let the public give their chance at this and open it up to them. Just uh, hopefully no one thinks that, oh, they're out of ideas, they're fishing from the public. Some notable things in that first draft were a rat-like amphibian who would be a result of an early experiment by the doctor in the film and be killed by Godzilla. Another was, at the end, Biollante would have had a human face when fighting Godzilla. I think we already get enough of that in this movie, I don't think we need any more of that stuff. So, I'm glad that got cut. Amori was a biologist and tried to use that to make the script as accurate as possible when working on it. He worked for three years to doctor up the screenplay into something manageable. Amori's two most sought-after series to direct were Godzilla and James Bond. This is pretty apparent in the spy elements that he included in this film. He was given a lot of creative control, really much more than normal, over the movie which would lead to the film's audience being much smaller and narrower due to the directions that he took it in. Toho saw this later as a mistake, and it would lead to a lot of the future films being designed by committee instead of just putting the director in charge of the whole thing. Koichi Kawakita was brought on to direct the special effects. He was a former employee of Tsuburaya Productions, and Toho was impressed on the effects work he did on the movie Gunhead. This would become the first kaiju movie ever to use CGI, even though it was only used to depict schematics on a computer. But we would get into way worse stuff and way more egregious stuff later on. Kawakita initially wanted to use stop motion, here we go again, but those scenes were eventually scrapped because they stood out when compared to the live action parts. They just keep wanting to go back to the stop motion stuff. I don't know if it's the roots with King Kong or any of that, but they love trying to go back to stop-motion. Godzilla vs. Biollante was released in Japan on December 16th of 1989. It made 1.4 billion yen on a budget of 700 million, so it did not even reach what Godzilla 1984 did. As far as the English version, Miramax was supposed to purchase the rights for distribution, when talks between Toho and Miramax stalled, Toho sued Miramax for 500000 claiming they broke a verbal agreement. The two settled out of court, and Miramax agreed to distribute the movie. It's not all good news, though, because this caused a delay in the film's release, and it wouldn't hit the U.S. until 1992. The uncut international version was used instead of getting a new dub done and instead of getting a theatrical release they released it directly to video using the HBO label. Here's where I want to get into something else because we also see a little bit of the weirdness seeping in with the Heisei physical media releases and the Millennium Era physical re- releases. While Universal does own the rights to King Kong vs. Godzilla we still see all of the Showa-era movies released through Criterion, something that I would hope that they do with other Toho films and not just these ones. You know, like I mentioned in the previous Godzilla episode, they have the rights to Rodan. They have the rights to something like War of the Gargantuas. I hope that one day they go through and sweep up all these Toho films and put them out at some point. But with the Heisei era Return of Godzilla has a very cheap and easy-to-find Blu-ray from Kraken Releasing, so you can get that one no problem. Godzilla vs. Biollante has a DVD from Miramax that you may be able to find. I think I found, or I had pointed someone to it on Walmart.com recently. I think it's still over there for a decent price, but that Blu-ray, I think there was a Blu-ray, and it's been long out of print, and the price is not reasonable. Godzilla vs. Biollante is by far the hardest to find, as there's nowhere to really stream it either, and that's the case with a lot of these Toho films. You have to dig into archive.org, because there's nowhere else. The rest of the Heise and Millennium films are owned by Sony, and were released in Blu-ray double feature packs. They also had, and I have the DVD set too, there was a two-pack, or two-case DVD set that had all of them from Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah to... The um, the end with Godzilla Final Wars. And all those were on those, ex- including some of the Rebirth of Mothra stuff. They have Blu-ray releases, which are like double features. Like I said, I think Rebirth of Mothra is in one set. And then all the other ones are in, you know, starting with Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. And Godzilla vs. Mothra, that's two-pack, and so on and so forth. Well, that first one with Ghidorah and Mothra is out of print. And, you know, there is no completing your... Godzilla Blu ray collection. If you don't want to pay hundreds of dollars for that out of print disc, I think all of those are available to rent too, so it's not like there's nothing there. I mean, you can get your hands on those ones if you want to watch them, but I would recommend going over to Walmart.com if you can, if you really want the Blu rays of these, if you don't have them, and picking them up immediately because if ones went out of print, there's no telling when the other ones will run out too. All right, let's get back on track and set up Godzilla vs. Biollante. So it ran for 105 minutes, released in 1989. And synopsis reads, After the previous Godzilla attack, a miniature arms race ensues to collect his cells. Concerned over Godzilla's possible return, the Japanese government uses these cells to create a new bioweapon, ANEB, or Anti-Nuclear Energy Bacteria. They seek the aid of geneticist Genshiro Shiragami, who experiments result in a new mutation. Yeah, Biolante is a good one, but it's where things get a little bit insane. I mean, you're talking about these Godzilla cells that basically the whole world is trying to get their hands on because it could be this powerful weapon. Then you're talking about this fake Saudi Arabia-type country, and you've got all the world powers focused on what's going on in Japan. And that's what's going on in this movie, but you've got psychics, the introduction of... Miki, who is a character who would come up throughout the entire Heisei era pretty much in varying levels of importance and all that, but yeah, you've got a really powerful scene with these psychic kids, there's a psychic institute, and these kids all hold up these pictures at the same time, and it's really cool, I mean, there's just so much insane stuff, including the ending of this movie and the end fight, and Byalante, you know, if we're sizing up the monster here, looks kind of like, you know, as Nathan Bartlebon <laughs> pointed out, kind of looks like Audrey from, you know, Little Shop of Horrors. And it's just this giant, crazy plant monster that comes out of experiments because the scientist was trying to bring his daughter back. Oh, yeah, did I mention he's trying to get his daughter uh, daughter's soul and cells and stuff to live on inside of a plant, and then he wants them to live on inside of a giant plant monster. You know, once uh once things get out of hand, that's pretty cool. This takes the Return of Godzilla, which was standalone, and kind of turns it into a a through line for what the Heisei era would be. it Bridges the gap between Return of Godzilla and Godzilla vs King Ghidorah, and again establishes characters who we would see some of these characters throughout the series. Also, I think you have a very clear message front and center. I think you're back to that in this movie. But, Biollante is not for the faint of heart. Now, the version that I have watched has, you know, mostly subtitles, and then it has some English dubbing thrown in for the non-Japanese characters. And let me tell you, the dubbing for these non-Japanese characters, especially this, like, secret agent spy guy who goes around killing people, it is one of the worst dubbing things that I've ever heard I don't know if there's a version out there that has strictly all Japanese I don't think there is but um yeah that gets interesting this one gets wild but it's definitely worth watching I wouldn't even dream of anyone ever starting with this one so I wouldn't even ask about that but <laughs> but Biolante's is cool I've definitely had my appreciation go up for this one as well these first two are a very strong start to the Heisei era which is something that I love in general. But let's go ahead and move on to Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. Godzilla vs. Biollante had been the most expensive Godzilla film up to that point and had failed to bring in the money Toho wanted. Tanaka's new plan was to bring back pre-1984 Godzilla enemies and they would start with one of the most popular in Ghidorah. Omori would be back to direct, but it wasn't exactly the route he wanted to take. He was initially hoping to work on a standalone Mothra series. He was rewriting a script for Mothra vs. Bagan when it was scrapped due to the perceived unappealing nature of Mothra to a western audience compared to Godzilla. They didn't think it would sell well overseas. Side note on that, that movie sounded pretty cool. Uh, I think we'll get into that a little bit more here coming up, but I wish we would have gotten that standalone Mothra series that wasn't the rebirth of Mothra that happened later. Tanaka's health began deteriorating and Shogo Tomiyama had to step in to replace him as producer. This caused delays in the film's planning stages. Tomiyama and Amori had differing ideas on why Godzilla vs. Biollante had failed, and I think both are equally ignorant in their approach Tomiyama believed it failed because it didn't appeal to children and vowed to return the series to its fantasy roots from pre-1984. Amori thought it failed because it went up against Back to the Future 2 and thought that audiences now favored time travel stories. He also set out to put more of an emphasis on the developing of the kaiju backstories as opposed to the human characteristics. Now, I don't know... I mean, for what it's worth, I don't know about either of those things. I don't think they necessarily contributed to why the film was failing, I more so think, you know, Godzilla versus Biollante is a weird movie, but even so, I mean, we've just seen returns for these movies go down and down the further they got on, when you throw something weird like that into the mix with that narrow scope like Toho was saying, I think that's really the driving force of why Biollante didn't perform. However, all of these elements would make it into this absolute beautiful mess of a film. In an interesting crossover, the Saurus in the film actually used recycled Gamera cries during the scene in which it's attacked. So there's your little dai Toho crossover there. Uh, the one we've all been waiting for is the Gamera sound in the Saurus body. What a win. The movie released in Japan on December 14th of 1991 and would go on to make 1.45 billion yen. It wouldn't see a U.S. release until Columbia TriStar released it on VHS in 1998, and this is going to be a trend. These are not going to get theatrical releases for the most part moving forward. Okay, let's set this one up and then we can start talking about it because, like I said, this thing is a mess. It's a beautiful mess, but it's a mess. Alright, so this was, again, directed by Amori, and came out in 1991, was 103 minutes long. The Futurians, time-traveling from the 23rd century, arrive in Japan to warn them of the nation's destruction under Godzilla. They offer to help erase Godzilla from history by preventing his creation. With Godzilla seemingly gone, a new monster emerges as the Futurians' true intentions are revealed. Alright, if you're planning on watching this movie... Buckle in, leave your brain at the door, and just be prepared for the most insane action you're going to get in a Godzilla movie. It's on par with the more insane titles in the series. We've got, and I don't want to get into full spoilers here, but I mean, it said it right there. We've got the time travel element thrown in. These people coming back from a different era with maybe not so great intentions. You've got these weird little... Alien creatures as well, which I won't get into a whole lot. You've got a saurus. So basically, when they're going back in time, there there's this group of people in present day who were in World War II, and they remember seeing a dinosaur on an island when they were battling, you know, the Americans. And this dinosaur saved them. Well, that's gets into this whole theory of like that's how Godzilla was created. You know, later on there was a test on that island. There was radioactive fallout and. Godzilla was born from that dinosaur, and that was the Godzilla-saurus. Are you following? <laughs> um, but that's not it. This would, you know, this entry would introduce Mecha King Ghidorah, and yeah, this man. There's an android in this thing. There's the you know futuristic android who runs at super speeds. There's a little bit of everything. Now I do kind of like the characters in this movie, even though Amori was. Intent on stepping back, the backstory of the kaiju that he created was basically just Godzilla Saurus and creating how King Ghidorah came to be, and that's what he's putting this film. But I think the characters are cool. There's a there's a military guy that had served in World War II, and I really like his send off in the film and how he you know (laughs) how he handles things. It's pretty cool. It's one of the most memorable things of this crazy film for me, and that's saying something. But honestly. This thing is insane. I mean, it is off-the-wall insane, <laughs> and it's kind of cool. I'm not going to say it's not cool. And the poster is one of my favorites ever. If you want to go and search that one out, the Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah poster is amazing. So, all that to say, this is a fun, entertaining movie that I really like, but it's not going to be for everyone, and it's certainly, you know, it's not one of the best in the series, No but it's this fun kind of take where they're trying to ape the sci-fi tropes of the time from American movies and throw them into this Godzilla phone It just makes for a crazy and fun adventure through through this movie with one of the most iconic Godzilla villains. I would definitely recommend this one, but it is lower on my list, and I think you'll see that when I get into my rankings, just because of some of the weird corny special effects that go on and I mean this one is out there I'm just saying but all right let's keep on going with Godzilla versus Mothra now I mentioned Mothra versus Begon earlier so let's dig into that that standalone Mothra script was put together in 1980 by Akira Morau in the script Begon was a vengeful dragon who wants to punish humanity for destroying earth Eventually, Madara would defeat Begon and save the day. And, like I said before, this was revised by Amori before being scrapped. So, you know how I pound in your brains that everything goes in cycles, and kind of have said that over and over again throughout these podcasts? Well, just like Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster and Invasion of the Astro Monster, after the success of the previous movie, Temiyama and Tanaka were toying with the ideas of another Ghidorah film, so back-to-back Ghidorah films again, titled Gidora's Counterattack. Now, I don't know what it is with the Japanese and this counterattack stuff. That'll come in later in this episode, but I'm assuming this is similar to Char's counterattack from the Gundam era. And yeah, I know, you know Will, I know you know what that is. If you're out there, shout out to you, my friend. But <laughs> let's move on because that one was scrapped. And why was it scrapped? Well, it's because a poll was sent around that showed that Mothra was actually more popular among women than Ghidorah. I mean, that's a no brainer there. And of course, since there were more women in Japan than there were men, that was their new direction. Okay, yeah, you can sense the sarcasm in my voice. It seems really, really dumb on the surface. Because I think, as Americans, again, we're back to this point, at least myself, thinking that. I have met very few women in my lifetime who would actually watch a Godzilla film. So just because there are more women than men doesn't always mean that you're going to get them with your sci-fi monster movie, right? Well, things might be a little different in Japan. Let's move on and we'll get to that. Mori was demoted from director to screenwriter and Takao Aquara was brought in to direct. Mori was mainly kept on so they could keep the film close to what Mothra vs. Begon was supposed to be. Begon was re-conceived as Bedora, and was now an evil twin of Mothra. Later, they would rename the beast Batra by combining, wait for it, Battle and Mothra. Wonderful. Wonderful poetry there. Frankie Sakai was supposed to return in this film from the original Mothra, but couldn't do so due to scheduling conflicts. Mothra was initially supposed to be killed and come back as Mecha Mothra, but that idea was rejected and this would go on to be the first Godzilla Heise film not to feature some kind of Mecha in it. One of the Godzilla suits needed for filming was stolen during the production and was found in a lake in pretty bad condition. This caused a delay in finishing the movie. Man, I don't know how you get off the lot with that thing, but good on them, I guess. Batra's cry in the film is just a recycled Rodan cry from the earlier movies. So here we go again, we're recycling monster noises. What kind of a world are we living in when we can't even have original monster noises? Ishiro Honda was able to visit the set of the film shortly before he died. So that's kind of a somber moment, but at least he got to see one last Godzilla film, which he was largely responsible for creating and bringing into popularity before his passing. It was released in Japan on December 12, 1992. Now, making fun of them for going after women as the target audience by bringing in Mothra? Maybe a little premature because it sold 4.2 million tickets in Japan and was the highest grossing movie of 1993 there. Overall, it would haul in 3.77 billion yen worldwide. Like Ghidorah, it would be released straight to video in 1998 in the US. I'm thinking this was most likely to drum up support for the US Godzilla, that would release that year. They're probably like, hey, we need to put more of these out so we can get them out of there in kind of a synergy type thing with the the new movie. So let's set this up a little bit. It was, again, directed by Okawara and released in 92. It was 102 minutes long. Synopsis reads, Mothra's dark counterpart, Batra, emerges to eliminate humanity on behalf of the Earth. Two tiny fairies called the Cosmos offer their help by calling Mothra to battle the creature. Unfortunately, a meteorite has awoken a hibernating Godzilla as a three-way battle for Earth begins. Now, this was subtitled in the U.S. as Godzilla vs. Mothra Battle for Earth, and you can see that uh, the whole title comes from this concept of, you know, there's a yin and a yang, there is Mothra, there is Batra, one is dark, one is light. They're both trying to save their world in their own way. Now, Nathan Bartlebaugh and I talked a little bit about this movie on our 1992 horror movie episode, which you can check out if you haven't already. It's a pretty cool top 10 episode. But basically, that's what we have here. We have three monsters in this one. I was going to say in um, King Ghidorah, you know, again, there's no, not really any recycling of monsters in these movies like we saw in the earlier days. It's Godzilla. It's King Ghidorah. In this one... It's Godzilla, it's Batra, it's Mothra, and that's it. I will start out by saying that I am a big Batra fan. I think Batra is really cool, and the battle between you know Godzilla and Mothra and Batra is really great. I think this movie now this isn't going to climb as high on my list of these Heisei era films as some of the other ones, but I will say this about it is this is a beautiful film. There are so many cool shots. There's a shot where. Mothra is turning from a larva into building a cocoon and all that and that is a beautiful gorgeous shot. One of the best in the whole series and it, it looks all the better with the upped production values of these you know, later Godzilla films. It's also cool how you have the Mothra theme which is a great remix of that theme and you had heard at the top of this show and that just slowly builds throughout the whole movie. You don't really hear full thing, it just kind of slowly builds, you hear snippets here and there. As far as the Shobujin, they're replaced by the Cosmos, which is essentially the same thing, just calling them something different. I don't know which one I like better, I don't really care for either, Shobujin sounds more natural, but whatever. But they're the ones who set up the exposition and warn, you know, Batra's gonna reawaken, and then we've got Godzilla reawakening, and some bad stuff's gonna descend on the Earth, because Batra and Mothra had come by once before, and had to deal with the Earth and the dying Earth and how to save it. That's really about all the further I want to get in on this one. It's definitely a must-see in this era of films, for sure. I think it is one of the better ones, but when it's compared to these other Haise films that I just love and are so much crazier, it's really good, and Batcher's really good, but it kind of falls at the end of that upper-tier in the Heisei era for my money. This is a great movie. If you're a Godzilla fan, you have to see this if you haven't. Um, it's definitely a must watch. But let's go ahead and move on. Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2. This film was originally meant to be the last one of the Heisei era. Toho wanted to honor Ishiro Honda's passing and to keep from competing with TriStar's slated film. Toho initially wanted to remake King Kong vs. Godzilla, but couldn't secure the rights from Universal. Next, they considered putting Godzilla up against Mechani-Kong from King Kong Escapes. In this insane movie premise, it would have been Mechani-Kong using syringes to inject G-Force soldiers into Godzilla's bloodstream a la Fantastic Voyage. Wow. (laughs) I don't even know where to start with that one. That is just off the charts weird, man. This idea, though, was shelved when it became apparent that even a King Kong lookalike would cost too much money for this movie. Tanaka and Tomiyama next pivoted to Mechagodzilla. They were looking to introduce Mechagodzilla to a new audience, since that worked so far with Ghidorah and Mothra in the previous two movies. At some point, the decision to include Baby Godzilla was made to once again appeal to that female audience that had propelled the success of Godzilla vs. Mothra a year earlier. And I say once again here because if you remember back to the first Godzilla episode I did, when we're talking about when Manila was introduced, it was to capture the date night audience because they thought they would bring in the women to the showings. Takawakwara, who was the director, wasn't a fan of the 60s Godzilla movies and objected to the inclusion of a baby Godzilla. However, it didn't matter in the end... He didn't have a say in the matter. Toho promoted this movie as longtime composer Akira Ikafube's last movie. They also ran a kids' show called Adventure Godzilla Land, and on an episode to promote this movie, they cast Godzilla and Mechagodzilla as rival news anchors, talking about the movie and kind of hyping it up. Kawakita used more CGI than he had previously in his effects. Rodan, though, was just a puppet in this one and didn't really use suitmation. And you can kind of tell this, but I th- I think Rodan looks pretty decent for being just a puppet in this movie. That's just me, I don't know. Kawakita also attempted to keep energy beams to a minimum this time around. He didn't want to... I don't know if that's, you know, budgetary restriction on keeping those to minimum, or he just thought they were lame. I'm not sure. The movie would release in Japan on December 11th of 1993 and made 1.87 billion yen in Japan. It ended with a worldwide haul of $36 million. Columbia TriStar released it on VHS on August 3rd of 1999 in the U.S. That kind of fits the pattern of the last couple that we had here that did not get theatrical releases. Alright, so now I'm going to get into the review portion of this movie. First thing I want to talk about, though, before we get into anything, is the naming convention. So before, it was pretty easy to name it, you know, this monster versus this monster because Godzilla versus King Ghidorah, first of all, I don't know if they referred to him as King Ghidorah, I don't think they did in the first one. So, and that movie was called Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, so it wasn't a Godzilla versus, that was before they were really doing that kind of stuff, or at least doing that kind of stuff with Godzilla headlining, so that's an easy one. And the second one, Godzilla vs. Mothra, you've got Mothra vs. Godzilla, but you don't have Godzilla vs. Mothra. So that's an easy distinction there, even though those two kind of get messed up. I think it's easier to say Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2, because you're not getting them twisted around like with, you know, King Kong vs. Godzilla or Godzilla vs. Kong. And you're not getting Mothra vs. Godzilla and Godzilla vs. Mothra twisted around. I mean, we all know probably which movie is which. There's big differences between those four films. But... This time around, they're just like, ah, let's just add a two. We've already had Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla because that's the end of the run of the Showa era. So we've, of course, been deep in the Godzilla versus by that point. So it's just a weird um, convention that you've got all these seemingly, you know, because these films are connected to themselves, but they're not connected to anything from the Showa era except the original. I wonder if this was titled something different in Japan. I almost bet it was. But here in the US it was good enough to be MechaGodzilla 2. All right, enough of that. Let's get into this one. So, this did release in 1993 and was 108 minutes long. Synopsis reads the UNGCC, United Nations Godzilla Countermeasure Center, recovers the remains of Mecha King Ghidorah and construct MechaGodzilla as a countermeasure against Godzilla. Meanwhile, a giant egg is discovered along with a new monster called Rodan. Meanwhile, a giant egg is discovered along with a new monster called Rodan. The egg is soon found to be none other than the infant Saurus. Let's get it out of the way right at the beginning. Saurus, the baby Godzilla in this one, I think is leaps and bounds ahead of Manila. I'm not, I'm not trying to start anything here. You let me know. Go over there on Twitter and let everyone know if you prefer baby Godzilla or Manila. In this movie anyway. I'm not going to get into what's next. But I had forgotten, and I always get the two Mechagodzilla post Showa era movies mixed up, this one and against Mechagodzilla, and I got this one mixed up again. I forgot what happened in this movie, and it is awesome. (laughs) This movie is a very much a Trey movie. This is everything I kind of want out of a Godzilla film you've got a you know a decent enough story that gets really weird and you've got Godzilla, you've got this baby Godzilla saurus you've got Rodan, you've got Mecha Godzilla. You've kind of got all these components. And the Mecha Godzilla, that was brought in, you know they talked about Mechani Kong earlier. They thought, you know, they were very successful with using these mecha type things in the last couple movies. Mecha King Ghidorah is obviously iconic and I had that Mecha Ghidorah toy and it was amazing as a kid, but I also had a Mecha Godzilla and I had a Mothra and all that stuff to digress there, bringing it back, they thought that was going to make it better, this is just a pretty crazy movie, now we get into these, you know, the government trying to, and we get that a little bit in King Ghidorah, you know, you do get the, you do get the controlling of Mecha King Ghidorah, and it's kind of piloted, but from here on out, you kind of get into these government programs, and you'll get them throughout these Godzilla movies, where they have countermeasures to go against Godzilla and try to stop Godzilla themselves without relying on the monsters like they did back in the Showa era. And make no mistake, again, Godzilla is not a hero in any of these movies. But, I have a couple questions, and I think these were alleviated when I read something online about them. But my first question was: I'm watching this again is, you know, Rodan's protecting this egg and protecting this baby Godzilla but it's a Godzilla. You know, did Rodan and um, Godzilla kind of get together? <laughs> is this God's, Is this Rodan's child? It's not. I think the the solution that I was given was Rodan had that egg in its nest. That's how this thing starts. We've got the egg and it's in Rodan's nest, and that kind of harkens back to when we saw Rodan initially in the self-titled Rodan movie, there's, where there's eggs and we get that kind of stuff. But I think it's just that Rodan kind of imprinted on this egg because it thought it was a baby and it was in its nest and all that stuff. So put that aside for a minute. We don't have any more confusing questions that we're gonna go down on that. but man, this this thing is just insane. You've got in that final battle where it's Mecha Godzilla and it's Rodan, and they have this kind of awesome battle and let's let's backtrack a little bit. I mean, you get a battle here between Godzilla and Rodan this is more of these monsters than we've seen in these previous entries, so it's really cool to have a lot of these monsters going at it, and that's the reason why I like it. But you've got a, you've got like Rodan and Godzilla going at it, and then later, you know, Rodan becomes more powerful when they thought it was killed, and kind of joins the fray against Godzilla to team up because of the baby Godzilla. And you've got Mickey back here, and she has a psychic connection to Godzilla, and she's, told to go after this thing called the second brain in Godzilla, and that's going to paralyze Godzilla if you go after the second brain, so she's out there to find the second brain, <laughs> whatever that is, and um, she's in Met Godzilla, the plan kind of backfires, but they do, you know, they eventually paralyze Godzilla, and you've got this whole thing with Rodan kind of sacrificing itself to save Godzilla after it hears the baby call, and you've got all this weird stuff going on. I just love all the weirdness of this movie, I think the effects are pretty good. I think Rodan is very good for a puppet, like I said earlier. You've got that kind of continuing story with uh, Mickey here, who plays a bigger role than in some of the other movies, and it's front and center with this psychic link to Godzilla, which I really like. The psychic element and the psychic link to Godzilla. I wish some of these other movies would have played more into that, but this is a really good one. It's got a really good mix of everything going on. I think it's one of the highlights of the Heisei era, and I'm saying that as someone who absolutely loves the Heisei era, which are just, you know, the short series of like seven movies or whatever it was. But yeah, I would absolutely recommend Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2. I'm not going to go out there and say any of these Heisei era films are standalone, you know, recommend to you, because they all kind of go in a path. I recommend you start with Return of Godzilla and just marathon all the way through Destoroyah. But that is my take on this. I love this one. It definitely gets a high grade for me. All right, let's keep going and go to Space Godzilla. Godzilla versus Space Godzilla, to be more precise. Now, this is the only one that I didn't rewatch this time around in this series. The reason being is I just kind of ran out of time. I said, I will wait. I couldn't get to it, basically. I couldn't find it anyway other than my Blu ray, and I couldn't get to that Blu ray when I was trying to watch them in order. So I said, you know, This is my least favorite of these. I'll get to it if I can get to it, and I could not get to it before having to record this stuff. I do want to take another shot at it. I just, from a base level, I just do not like the design of Space Godzilla. But let's get, let's stop getting ahead of ourselves. Let's get into a little bit of the background and do that first. So The director for this one was Kensho Yashimata, and the writer was Hiroshi Kashiwabara and they were known for making Teen Idol films, but they did have small parts in working on The Terror of Mechagodzilla, so it was a very interesting crew they got to work on this one. They decided to give the film a much lighter tone and focus on the character development of Miki Sagusa. Miki was portrayed by Megumi Odaka, and that is in throughout you know, this entire series, and she was a fixture of the Heisei era, as we've talked about, ever since Biollante. So, they're giving it a lighter tone, that's already off on the wrong foot for me, if you know how I feel about that, especially since these movies have been very dark. For Godzilla movies, at least, they're pretty dark, and they're pretty serious, and Godzilla's the bad guy, and I think there's too much baby Godzilla going on in this as well. But, let's continue on. A scene with Godzilla desperately trying to save baby Godzilla was cut due to the seriousness of the scene. That's how committed they were to this lighter feel of the film, and that's what I'm talking about, is even something like that was considered too dark for this. The concept of Space Godzilla first came to light in 1978, so this was a long time coming, and it was originally designed as a dragon. Kawakita wasn't a fan of the way Baby Godzilla looked in the last movie, and made the character more like a cartoon. Again, not helping your case here. I actually didn't mind Baby Godzilla in the last movie, or the... Saurus or whatever moguera also makes its first appearance since the mysterians so this is the weird robot and i will talk a little bit about the mysterians on the next episode but this is the only kaiju element of the mysterians and toho true to form you can never count out toho pulling in some weird kaiju for a mashup this is the second godzilla movie to show brief nudity which is, again, like I said with Terror of Mechagodzilla, and I haven't rewatched this in a while, but it's just jarring if you see that in a Godzilla movie. The movie released on December 10th of 1994. It pulled in around 1.65 billion yen. It was released not too long after the Kobe earthquake in Japan, and this scared Toho into lowering ticket prices to get people in the door. Not a good path to take, you know, it's not going to help you in the long run. In January of 1999, Tristar released this movie straight-to-video alongside Godzilla vs. Destoroyah. So, I can go ahead and set this up. But just know I'm not going to talk too much about this, because I don't remember a whole lot about this one. Like I said, I'm not a huge fan of the design of Space Godzilla. I'm not a huge fan of the lighter tone. I am a huge fan of, you know, the Miki character. But, uh, this was, so this was released in 1994, ran for 108 minutes... And again, you see that, these longer running Godzilla films in this Heisei era. Synopsis reads A mysterious extraterrestrial being resembling Godzilla rapidly approaches Earth. The monster, dubbed Space Godzilla, lands to challenge the King of the Monsters. So, this is just not my bag. If you are, I know there's someone out there. I know Nathan Bartlebaugh doesn't mind this movie. I just think it's everything together that makes this kind of a miss for me. I just watched this a couple years ago. I'll probably rewatch it one more time in the future to give it another chance, but I don't have a whole lot to say on Space Godzilla, as I haven't watched it recently. You could make your own decision. I don't think it's a terrible movie from what I remember, it's just not the kind of thing I want out of a Godzilla movie, especially when you're watching all these Heisei-era ones back to back to back. Alright, here we go, let's get, let's get to this one. Godzilla vs. Destoroyah. This one goes out to you, Jackson Rawlings, the number one Destoroyah fan. I don't know if that's true, but Jackson does love him some Mecha Mechagodzilla 2 and Space Godzilla failed to reach the heights of Godzilla vs. Mothra, and if you remember just from a little bit ago, Godzilla vs. Mothra did some good business. As such, Tomiyama announced the next Godzilla movie would be the last in the series. Kazuki Omori, was back as the writer and initially created the idea of Godzilla versus Ghost Godzilla. In this proposed movie, it would feature Godzilla, as we know him currently, battling the ghost of the 1954 Godzilla. Yes, that is a real thing. Never be surprised when you hear the initial pitch of a Godzilla movie, trust me. I think we've learned enough from all of these movies that I've covered. These kaiju movies are insane and there are no limits you want a kaiju versus Frankenstein? You want a kaiju versus Dracula? You want a kaiju versus a ghost Godzilla? We got that, you know? Anyway. <laughs> the film garnered a lot of attention after it was announced that Godzilla was set to die in this one. So they've said it's the last in the series. Godzilla's set to die. We're getting ready to get that American release. Dire times for our big green friend. A giant bronze statue of Godzilla was even created to sit in the Hibiya Cinema District and after release, fans would actually come to this statue and leave offerings of coins and tobacco at the statue to honor Godzilla. But also after release, fans sent a ton of letters to Toho demanding that Godzilla be brought back to life. They were not happy, and it kind of forced the studio's hand, really. Toho assured people that Godzilla wasn't permanently dead, and they promised to bring him back in the 21st century. That is a promise they would make good on, so good for them. Kenpaijiro Satsuma played Godzilla in this movie and was almost suffocated six different times due to the combination of the suit's weight and the gas fumes that came off of the suit. Again, if you were playing a kaiju in one of these suits, you had to be insane or have a death wish because these people did not fare very well. I have the utmost respect for anyone who was in one of these suits doing their business in one of these movies you know congratulations to you you are insane but i respect you Godzilla vs. Destoroyah rode released in Japan on December 9th of 1995 it made 3.5 billion yen which is right up there with what mothera made and was the number one domestic release for 1996 unfortunately that's about all i have as far as background notes on Destoroyah Let's get in and talk about this movie, which is a very sad swan song. Released in 1995, it ran for 103 minutes, and the synopsis reads, A burning Godzilla on the verge of meltdown emerges to lay siege to Hong Kong. At the same time, horrifying new organisms are discovered in Japan. These crustacean-like beings are seemingly born of the oxygen destroyer, the weapon that killed the original Godzilla. So there's some cool stuff, let's get into that right off the bat with the Oxygen Destroyer, is there are some flashbacks to the earlier movie, to the 1954 Godzilla, which is pretty cool. It's cool to incorporate everything into this. The soundtrack to this one is really good and somber. Let's talk about Destoroyah for a little bit. There's a reason Destoroyah is a fan favorite, and that is because Destoroyah goes through these cool transformations until it gets to its final form. But Destoroyah is not the biggest threat in this movie. It's Godzilla himself. Godzilla is the biggest threat to mankind in this movie. Because Godzilla is about to go nuclear. And my gosh, if you look at Godzilla during this movie, the design of Godzilla is insane. You've got these orange streaks running all throughout its body. It's so cool. The Godzilla creation is so cool. Destoroyah is really cool as well. And they have to hatch a plan because if Godzilla melts down and gets to a certain temperature, it's going to take the Earth with it, you know? That's going to be the end for us. So they've got to figure out a plan to either stop Godzilla from melting down, like kill Godzilla, or like slow down this meltdown any way they can. So one cool thing is you've got, like I said, a lot of legacy in this. I think you've even got the grandson character of one of the characters from the original movie. So, uh, and you've got, and i and I'm sorry if I'm getting into it. I feel like you can't spoil these movies a whole lot, but you get into, you know, you've got Godzilla Jr. here, because I think uh, at the beginning of the movie, Miki had gone into this place where they were holding Godzilla and, you know, baby Godzilla, and it was kind of destroyed and both of them were missing. That's when they kind of find out Godzilla reappears with all these lava things all over him, and he's absorbing, like, the volcanic stuff, and it's a threat, like I was saying earlier, to melt down the entire world. Well... What we get later on, I think, is really cool. First of all, you get, and if you don't want to hear anything about Destroya, if you haven't seen it, just jump ahead like a minute or so, and I'll be done with this. But you get this really cool thing where, um, well, first, Godzilla Jr. is assumed to be murdered by Destroya, which does not make Godzilla happy, sends him into a an outrage and kind of goes into major meltdown mode even quicker than expected. And then you've got the final battle where after Godzilla is, he defeats Destoroyah, but Godzilla is melting down, so they are able to stop that and slow that, but what happens is Godzilla Jr. comes back to life, because Tokyo is still, even though they've stopped a little bit, it's uninhabitable, it's a wasteland, comes back to life and absorbs the radiation, so everything's kind of set right at the end of this movie, but it's very, very sad and somber. Destoroyah is a top tier Godzilla film. I think it's right up there. I mean, it's challenging for the best movie in the Heisei era. I think the Heisei era is very solid. Maybe that's just what I want out of Godzilla movies. And maybe that's why I'm so high on these. But Destoroyah is a must watch, which is why when I said, you know, the little spoiler piece earlier, if you don't want to know anything, I don't think anything's going to be ruined for you. I mean, we all know what happens in this movie to an extent. But very good movie. Definitely check it out. Put it on the top of your watch list if you haven't seen this one and you are interested at all in Godzilla or kaiju movies. Okay, well, we're going to have a little interlude here where we go into something that I'm sure everyone wants to talk about, and that is the 1998 TriStar film. Bear with me. Let me set this up. We're not going to go deep into this movie a whole lot, but I think it's interesting enough to talk about some of the things surrounding this and what would lead. A change in direction. Oh, but first, really quick, I almost forgot. I did want to mention, and I talked about it a little earlier, the Rebirth of Mothra series. We don't really have any details on these movies and how they were made apart from the original being Tanaka's last film as a producer before his death. It's very sad that we're seeing these people who created Godzilla and Honda and Tanaka pass away during this era. It's very sad and it's kind of this changing of the guard for sure but it's so wonderful that we had these two to affect the series in the way they did. The three rebirth of Mothra films released in 1996, 1997, and 1998, and from what I remember, they are much more geared towards children. They served as a reboot for Mothra within the franchise, but again, it wasn't necessarily an adult-oriented one. I haven't watched these since I was a kid, and I don't remember a ton about them, but I did want to mention them. So they might not be for everyone, you might check one out and be like, wow, that seems like it's aimed towards children, and you would be right. But I couldn't just leave them out, because they're still a part of that Godzilla universe at this time. Alright, now let's get on to Godzilla 1998 from Tristar. I'm not going in-depth about this, but I have to give a little background, and to be honest... The last time I rewatched this film, I was pretty sour on it, but as a kid, I remember watching this thing over and over as just this rabid Godzilla fan. You have to remember, I was 8 or 9 years old when I was just watching this thing over and over. It it just hasn't aged well. It's not a great movie. But, continuing on. Our old friend, Henry G. Saperstein, of, you know, King Kong vs. Godzilla and all that fame, begged Toho for around 10 years to let him pitch a new film to American companies. And this would have been probably when the series was on a bit of a hiatus in the 80s, 70, late 70s, early 80s. He finally got the green light and met with some producers at Sony. Interestingly enough, the meeting was actually meant to discuss the live-action Mr. Magoo film, but somehow Godzilla came up during the meeting. Can you imagine that? You're there to talk about Mr. Magoo and somehow you get an American Godzilla up and running, (laughs) but it's sad that I feel like this is going to be one of the, the most facts that I bring for a movie on this episode, but it's just so interesting I couldn't keep it off, and there's even more about this that I just straight up ignored. There's a lot more on a lot of these American films than some of the Toho Godzilla movies. Carrie Woods was one of the two producers, and was rejected when he pitched it to both Columbia and Tristar. So they're separate entities at the time, you gotta pitch to both. Both said no. His wife, however, suggested to go over their heads and go straight to the CEO of Sony. Peter Goober was the said CEO and loved the idea. It said he responded with, Godzilla? The fire-breathing monster? Yes! (laughs) I love that. How excited he was. And then he said fire-breathing monster. I mean, not necessarily, but let's go with it. So, I think the moral of the story is we basically have Mrs. Woods to blame for this whole mess. For shame. Now, I, we're not gonna... I'm gonna stop being snarky here. I absolutely promise that. Tristar licensed the rights for between 300000 and $400,000. The agreement was very detailed and even included rights to the monsters from previous Godzilla, f- from 15 previous Godzilla movies and allowed Toho to continue making their own films while the movie was in development. Sony initially was planning to make this movie a trilogy. Now this thing toiled in development hell for years and went to several different director-writer combos. One of the initial ideas changed Godzilla to a creation made by Atlanteans, to defend the world from a shape-shifting alien called the Griffin. I kind of wish we got that movie. I mean, it sounds like it has bits and pieces of other kaiju movies in there. For sure, I don't think it's anything we've seen before. And I think that shape-shifting alien has come up a couple of times in Godzilla before, so as like a an idea bandied about. But So once it went through those director-writer combos, it landed finally on Roland Emmerich. And he came in to, you know, do a Roland Emmerich job on this movie. Initially, he rejected the role, saying he thought the whole thing was dopey. But when he did come on board, he insisted on doing things his way and making Godzilla a creature out of nature. He also wanted to replace the iconic atomic breath for Big Bad Wolf approved super wind blowing breath. Yes, wonderful idea, Mr. Disaster Movie. This caused major ripples with Tomiyama, once he saw the final design, he flew back to Tokyo to discuss it with Tanaka, whose health prevented him from traveling anywhere. It wasn't plausible to edit the design to what they kind of envisioned for it, so the question was whether they would approve it at all, or just flat-out reject it and say, no, start again. little funny anecdote here is when Tomiyama was trying to describe and explain this thing to Tanaka, He described the creature as being similar to Carl Lewis with long legs, and it ran really fast. (laughs) So, not I don't know if that's a ringing endorsement, saying it looks like this track and field star, but... ah. At the end of the day, Toho executive Isao Matsuoka eventually approved the design, saying it was, at least in the spirit of the original Godzilla, you're gonna have to sell me on that. Now, personally... I don't necessarily mind the design of the monster in Godzilla 1998, but it isn't really Godzilla. It's a different, separate thing, and I think that's why Toho was quick to jump on calling it, you know, Zilla when they got the rights back. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think it's a bad design. I like the design. I don't. I think it would, you know, do well as its own standalone kaiju movie. Is that what Emmerich wanted? I don't know. But he clearly had no reverence for Godzilla. Okay, enough about that, let's get to the post-release. Sony was so confident in the entry that they paid Toho $5 million prior to release to secure the sequel rights. It said they needed to make $240 million domestically for the movie to be a success. It ended up only making $137 million domestically and another two hundred and forty-two million internationally. Due to low box office numbers and lack of enthusiasm from fans and Hollywood alike, The trilogy was cancelled. Mercifully. Okay, let's get out of Godzilla 98 and get back into the Toho films. Godzilla 2000 is next up on our list here. Godzilla 2000 was the second time Toho rebooted the Godzilla franchise. This set of movies ignores everything outside the original Godzilla once again, so we have that nice through line through the Heisei era. Unfortunately, with what has come to be known as the Millennium Era... We're not going to see that. There was a lot of built-up demand for a new Toho Godzilla film. You can only imagine because, you know, 1995 was the last time they released a movie, and we saw the same thing between the Heisei and the Showa era. There was a little bit of a gap. There was so much demand that two months after the release of Tristar's Disaster of a Movie, they began to work on a new installment. You'll remember they promised fans that in the new millennium, Godzilla would live again, so they're trying to stick to that promise. Tomiyama came up with the idea to bring in the writers of Mechagodzilla 2 and Space Godzilla to get three different perspectives of the new film, including his own, so his idea is, you know, two writers, one producer, three different visions. Director Takao Okawara was back for this one and wanted to change up Godzilla's look. Okawara felt that Godzilla was too tall now, remember he was changed to meet the skyline level of the growing Japanese cities, you know, of Tokyo and stuff. But Akuwara was like, no, it's time to reduce the size of this guy and bring it back to the height of the original Godzilla. He was quoted as saying, I felt the distance between human beings and Godzilla was just too much. The movie also marked the first time CGI was used to depict Godzilla himself. So this was the beginning of a very troubling trend in these movies. I'm sure we'll continue talking about this as we move along, but yeah, but that's about all, and they did have the practical effects, it was just there was some CGI for Godzilla as well. The Japanese release of the film was on December 11th, 1999, and it made 1.65 billion yen. Not exactly promising for a return to the franchise. Now, standard practice through the Heisei era was that Toho would produce an English-dubbed version in Hong Kong for their international version. This was the case again here, and Sony created their own dub as well, which usually happened with these other releases. They specifically made sure to use Asian-American actors because the ADR director didn't want the characters to sound like they were from Wisconsin. This is very much in the veins similar to, I wouldn't say it's similar to King of the Monsters or Godzilla 1985, but it is them taking more work on the dub than they had in the past. How much? Well, you know, Sony spent around 11 million dollars to acquire the rights, the dub, and to market the film, and they were hoping it would make 12 to 15 million in the North American run. Unfortunately, it only made around 10 million and did not make its budget back in North America. But at least there was a theatrical release, and I've told the story of Godzilla 2000 before when it was in movie theaters here, and I think this would be the last one we would see a theatrical release for until Shin Godzilla. It's kind of sad this one didn't do better. For the Sony release, 8 minutes were cut from the movie mostly due to pacing issues and the dubbed dialogue was purposely made to be more humorous and tongue-in-cheek than the original. Many fans don't like this version as it doesn't take the subject as serious as the Japanese version. All right, well let's talk about Godzilla 2000 a little bit. Fukawara returned to direct it was released in 1999 and ran for 107 minutes. And that's barely in 99, so don't get on that Godzilla 2000 stuff. It, it really was. I think in the US it was subtitled Millennium. Godzilla 2000 Millennium, I can't remember. But anyway. The synopsis reads, An independent group of researchers called the Godzilla Prediction Network actively track Godzilla as he makes landfall in Nemuro. Matters are further complicated when a giant meteor is discovered in the Ibiragi Prefecture. The mysterious rock begins to levitate as its true intentions for the world and Godzilla are revealed. I will say very similarly to Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah that the poster for this is awesome. Those are probably my two favorite Godzilla posters of all time, even though both of the movies are a little underwhelming for me. What do we get with Godzilla 2000? Well, it's much more of that Godzilla 1984, Godzilla 1954 focus on some characters, and we've got new characters here, of course, but we also get this new and gnarly-looking Godzilla design. Very different. I don't know. I'm kind of mixed on it. I like it, and I don't like it to an extent, so I was really in for the Heisei-era Godzilla, but whatever. I am a Heisei-era Godzilla fanboy, so let's just move on from that. There are some really cool scenes involving Godzilla, especially one in a tunnel and it kind of plays off like an almost Jurassic Park type scene. And I I love that. It really kind of strikes fear into these characters as they see Godzilla in this way. And then there's another one with a building near the end that's very memorable. And I think those scenes, I think the visuals and some of the scenes in this are great. And I think that gives it that lasting impact. But other than that, I mean, it's pretty forgettable <laughs> overall. The CGI is terrible when they use it, and the monster fighting is really at a minimum. We do have another monster, doesn't show up until later. Ton of CGI used in this movie, and it's awful. With this one, we have Godzilla versus Orga, and Orga is cool when he's not CGI, but other than that, like I said, there's just not a whole lot of action. I like the main scientist, his daughter, and the reporter, and how they interact, and I think those character stories are what that and some of the visuals really salvage this movie, but I don't know, it's just not enough to push this one into the upper tier of Godzilla films. It's absolutely still worth a watch, especially if you're a Godzilla completist, if you haven't seen it yet, and it does mark a completely different take on the series and how it would go moving forward with these unrelated scattershot Millennium Era movies, but Godzilla 2000 is worth a watch, I just don't know if it's worth the, you know, five watches I've given it at this point in my lifetime, (laughs) and a lot of that is because it's kind of forgettable as a Godzilla movie, there are movies we're going to talk about coming up that definitely aren't forgettable, I (laughs) I would say more so the Millennium Era is forgettable in in some stances, but uh, there's some good and some bad. Let's let's get into that and talk about it. So we'll start the talking with Godzilla versus Megaguirus. And not a whole lot to say on this one because there's not a whole lot we know about this one. And unfortunately, there's not a whole lot we know about a lot of the rest of these movies. What we do know is that it once again ignores the series outside of the original, so it doesn't even take Godzilla 2000 into its timeline. It released in Japan on December 16th of 2000 and made 1.2 billion yen. And then it released straight to TV in the U.S. with a TriStar produced dub. That is all I could find on this movie. There is hardly anything out there about this movie. So we're just going to talk about it for a little bit. Godzilla vs. Mega Gears was directed by Masaki Tezuka and it came out in 2000, ran for 105 minutes. The synopsis reads, and hold on, hold on. The tagline on Letterbox just says, Godzilla disappears. Alright, now the, <laughs> the synopsis reads, In an alternate timeline, the original Godzilla is never defeated, and repeatedly re-emerges to feed on Japan's energy sources. A new interdimensional weapon, called the Dimension Tide, is created with the intent of eliminating Godzilla. However, the new weapon might also serve as a gateway to something far more sinister. Alright, so, I remember really liking this one the first time I had watched it, back not too long ago, because, you know, a lot of these Millennium Era films, I wasn't really watching Godzilla when they were coming out for the most part, but I kind of came down on it a little bit this time around. This movie is, and let me give you the basic setup of this, Godzilla from the original is still there, the original Godzilla Oxen Destroyer was not used on him, they just moved their capital from Tokyo to Osaka and this is the original Godzilla still rampaging around all these years later. So they come up with this weapon that creates wormholes. Really, they bring back this prehistoric dragonfly creature, and that creature lays eggs, and things get bad from there. But you want to talk about bad, and that is the CGI that plagues this movie. I think the CGI is awful. Also, there's an awful-looking Godzilla suit, and the close-ups are not kind of that one. I just do not like this version of Godzilla. The idea of Mega Gears is really cool, though, and I do like the way Mega Gears looks once it finally makes its appearance in the movie, because it's not just these little baby dragonflies that are fighting the whole time, which use, you know, terrible CGI. But we do have to talk about something. The military organization that is in this movie is called the G-Graspers. Yes. The G Graspers. Terrible name. It's just another one of these, we would see it throughout these millennium era films at least, where we've got military-type organizations, futuristic military-type organizations that are going after different avenues or technology to take down Godzilla. I do, however, like the backstory flashback scene we see in the beginning of this film. It's these military personnel who are trying to take down Godzilla and some bad stuff happens. And it really sets up why our main character is driving forward. But everything else about that organization is pretty lame. There's also a very laughable fight between Mechagirus and Godzilla. I don't think it's going to go down in the record books. I just don't think it is. And these are the only two kaiju in this film as well. But, I mean, I don't think we would really see... I'm trying to think, but we don't get any new kaiju... In the rest of this series, we really don't. And I wish we did get some more, but this is pretty much it. As far as recommending Mega Gears, you're gonna wanna see it if you're a Godzilla fan. I think it's a good movie, it's just it's just not great. It's not gonna stand up to the other Godzilla films around it, but it is worth your time and is worth checking out, especially if you're a huge Godzilla fan. Let's move on to what is probably the my favorite film in the Godzilla franchise. Okay, next up is like I said, the all time classic Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah: Giant Monsters All Out Attack. What a title! So let's let's get in and set this one up. Shusuke Kaneko was brought in to direct, fresh off the resounding success that was the Gamera Heisei trilogy. He went through many script revisions, including one that would have Godzilla fighting a redesigned Kamakuras. This idea was thrown out since he just fought an insect in the last movie, and you know we can't have two insects in a row. Another script that had Godzilla facing a new monster from space was rejected because of how dark it was. That's really easy to see with Kaneko from the Gamera movies and from this one, too. I would have liked to see... Him. I don't know why he didn't go on to direct more. I know he directed some horror movies too that I will be checking out at some point, but he definitely has that dark tone and serious vibe down. I really wish he would have directed more kaiju movies, even if they were just one-offs or new ideas. Next up was the guardian monster concept, which made it into the final film, if only slightly different. Kaniko wanted the guardians to be Angiris, Varan, and Baragon. Toho forced him to substitute in Mothra and Ghidorah and ditch Anguirus and Varan. I wish they would have let this guy do his own Godzilla trilogy and bring in some of these older monsters and give them the same treatment that Baragon got because these are definitely lesser known monsters. Or maybe not with Anguirus, but they're good monsters nonetheless. It just seemed like he had so many ideas going around. I just wish he would have been able to do some more. Many changes were made to the monsters from past incarnations, mainly with Mothra and Ghidorah. Kaniko wanted Godzilla to be the biggest threat in the movie, which is why he initially wanted lesser monsters in this movie. So he didn't want these super-powered fan favorites because they're too powerful when squared off against Godzilla. To compensate, he made Mothra and Ghidorah smaller and less powerful than they were in the past. He also cut out the Shobujin but did put in an ode to them when we see some twins during a sequence in the film. Fuyuki Shinada was the suit designer and was upset when his favorite monster, Varen, was replaced. Man, I feel for the guy, because Varen is an underused character for sure. I think he's cool, especially in his own movie, even if the movie's not that great. But Varen is a really cool character, and I think there's some cool elements in that movie if you go back and watch it and Varin had a smaller role in Destroy Monsters and then got cut from this one, so that's a very sad existence for the poor guy. His favorite monster was finally getting time to shine and was thrown out. To make up for it, he included Varin's facial features in King Ghidorah's design, though. Take that. The movie released on December 15th of 2001 and made 2.7 billion yen, so we're going in the right direction here. It played on a double bill with, interestingly enough, a Hamtaro movie, which... If you're not familiar, Hamtaro is an anime aimed at children more, but they're they're hamsters, they're animated hamsters. So, very interesting double bill. Sony planned on releasing this and Megaguirus in theaters, but after the disappointment of Godzilla 2000, they canceled the wide releases and instead made edited TV versions. Not exactly, I mean, let's be honest, this is the reason why I didn't see a lot of these until later, because they were just... Pushed out on TV at a time when I wasn't watching this stuff. Speaking of, they both premiered during a sci-fi channel Labor Day Marathon in 2003. For GMK here, uh, let's set this up a little bit and get into talking about it. Was directed by Conoco, released in 2001, 105 minutes long. Listen to this tagline, the God of Destruction Godzilla lands in Japan. I love that line. That's pretty good. Godzilla has become a distant memory for Japan when the destruction of a U.S. submarine raises alarms for Admiral Tachibana. His estranged daughter Yuri investigates the legend of the Guardian Monsters, who must rise to protect Japan against the vengeful spirits within Godzilla that seek to destroy both the nation and its people for the suffering they inflicted in the Pacific Conflict. Pretty good synopsis there. In this one, our monster lineup is Godzilla and he's facing off against, at different times, Baragon, Mothra, and Ghidorah. King Ghidorah, specifically. The difference here is, one, we've got Ghidorah as a good guy. Ghidorah is finally in the, you know, the shining hero role, as it were, as they're all trying to work to take down Godzilla. This one is pretty cool, not only for the monster fighting, but because it plays to the human element more, which we would expect after the Gamera Heisei movies. I really do like the main character in this and she's this reporter at this nowhere news station and trying to get the scoop on all this. But her father, like it said, is an admiral who um, he's working within the military of some sort in the Navy and they're kind of on opposite sides of this. Like he's there in controlling, has a controlling interest in the military and kind of keeping the public out and she's out there chasing down this news story. I really like her. She's a great character. You know, there's a scene early on where one of the guys that works with her takes <laughs> brings her home to her father. You know, she's, she's hammered, and that's a pretty funny exchange there, and I, I like the little character moments that they put in this thing. What do I also like? Well, we see some pretty close-up carnage. There are people that definitely get caught up in the middle of the carnage, And I wish some more Godzilla films would do this instead of, you know, focusing on destroying buildings or destroying this or that. We see people get caught up and swept up, and we see close-ups of these people. We get up close and personal, I guess, when the destruction's coming through, which is really cool. It's not that it's like this bloody massacre or anything, but it is known, and there's a little bit more focus put on when people are dying. There are some awesome effects in this movie and some awesome fights, too. There are are a few main fights in this movie, and one involving Godzilla and Baragon is one for the ages. I love how that whole thing was put together and how it plays out, and I think it's an amazing fight back and forth between the two. This, This is just... I go back and forth because I think, overall, this... It might be my favorite. It's up there with 54. The thing is, is this one's more of that traditional monsters battling... And it has the big budget effects and it's much more fun. The original has, I mean, it's not, it's not too fun. There's a darker tone throughout, but the original is just such a dark movie and it's just Godzilla and he's destroying. And I don't know, I go back and forth. Those two are at the top for sure. And they're not getting touched by anything else in the immediate future. But yeah, I just go back and forth on them for different reasons. I mean, Godzilla is the better film. But this is maybe my more favorite to watch out of the two. I don't know. I don't know. But I keep going back and forth. These two are amazing. I think if you're going to watch some Godzilla films, you've got to watch Godzilla 1954. You've got to watch GMK or Godzilla Mother King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters All Out Attack, if you want to see the entire name. But this is a must watch. And I think, I mean, this is one, if you can't take kaiju movies seriously, if you have a problem with that, I would recommend, and I'm sure we'll get into talking about this stuff on the Phantom Galaxy episode if we're doing that in the future, talking about, you know, the Gamera Heisei trilogy, but those three and then this one would really be some ones to get you into it. I think they're darker stories, they're, you get in to know the characters and everything, and I think they're pretty cool. I think it's a pretty good starting place overall. goes without saying that my recommendation is to absolutely check this one out as soon as possible. Okay, let's get into yet another Mechagodzilla movie with Godzilla against Mechagodzilla. This movie also ignores all previous movies outside of the original, but would get a direct sequel in the next year with the film we'll talk about next. Once again, they decided to bring back Mechagodzilla after Mothra and Ghidorah were successfully brought back in GMK. I'm sensing a pattern over and over here, and it's all cyclical. A slight change in this one was everyone referring to Mecha Godzilla as Kiryu, which means machine dragon, or they would also refer to him as Mecha G. Mecha Godzilla was never uttered in this, or I think it was in Tokyo S.O.S. Maybe in the dub version, but yes, going with Kiryu or Mecha G. It opened in Japan on December fourteenth of two thousand two and made one point nine billion yen, making it the second most successful of the Millennium films. So we do go down a great deal, but it's still pretty successful. The international version first came to the U.S. on DVD in 2004, so you're seeing a bit of a lag here in getting these movies. Okay, so let's set up this movie because that is unfortunately all I have for that one. Directed by Masaki Tezuka, came out in 2002 and ran for 88 minutes. So much shorter than some of the previous ones. JSDF pilot Akane has a fateful encounter when a new Godzilla emerges in Tatayama. As a countermeasure, a cyborg named Kiryu is constructed from the remains of the original. The machine is discovered to harbor the restless soul of the original monster, as Akane must learn to find value in her own life as well. So to start this off, we have Akane who has this... This is really a redemption arc right this whole movie is a redemption arc it's a redemption arc for Akane it's a redemption arc for Kiryu or Mechagodzilla we've got Akane who early on hesitates when they're trying to take down Godzilla and I should say to back this up a little bit we get this kind of alternative timeline history where this military unit took down you know Godzilla was killed by the oxygen destroyer and then I think we see the military take down like Mothra and Gaira and these other kaiju and stuff, so that's, I mean, that's pretty cool, but they've learned to take them down with things called Mazers, which are awful, awful name, but Akane hesitates with these Mazers in the new Godzilla, and doesn't kill it, and people get killed around her, so she's on this redemption arc there, take the remains of the original 1954 Godzilla, and make it into Mechagodzilla, problem is, is that Mechagodzilla, who is piloted partially by Akane, at least, still has some of the, you know, remnants of the original Godzilla in it. It still reverts back at one point and destroys a city because of its programming. So it's a redemption arc for both of them to be able to try to take down Godzilla. We just have Godzilla and Kiryu in this one. It's just those two squaring off. There's she's very closed off. Her squad mates kind of trash her and all this because she lives on this military base. Then you have a scientist and his daughter and the the daughter is very cute, very adorable as we go through and learn more about them, which is a nice touch, it's always cool when you can have a good child character in a movie, that it's that situation where you've got a single dad who's out of his league, and she's doing her best to guide him along, and I I do like that in films, he's trying to get to know her better, and take her out to dinner, and all this stuff, and she's not having it, and, and that's Akane, by the way, and the daughter's trying to connect with Akane, and all this, and it's this whole thing like i said the whole movie's kind of a redemption arc i do like the movie um as a added bonus in this movie japanese uh, superstar baseball player hideki matsui is in this so for those of you aware of that player i'm sure you know greg mortis and bill and maybe dave becker are aware of hideki matsui but yeah he was a big deal when he came over to the us and played for the yankees so yeah but he's in this movie during a baseball game that takes place in the movie. Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla is its pretty good. It's a good story. The characters are good enough. The, the action is there. It's a little bit hindered or hobbled by the military element. And how that whole thing goes. But it's not bad. I think it's a pretty solid entry. Especially as far as some of these Millennium entries go. I think this is the trilogy right here. I think these are the... Shining examples of the Millennium to different degrees with GMK, Godzilla against Mechagodzilla, and Godzilla Tokyo SOS. They were kind of firing on all cylinders as much as they could in this era. That's definitely a recommend for me. Again, this is another one that has no connection to any previous Godzilla except the original. If you watch the original, you can watch most of these with the exception of the Haisei era ones. Those ones you can still watch individually too, let's be honest. But they do have a bit of a through line. Okay, let's wrap this up and go over to Godzilla Tokyo S.O.S. These names, they're getting more creative, right? We've got Godzilla against Mechagodzilla. You've got Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters All Out of Attack. They're not just Godzilla versus something at this point. So, unfortunately, this is going to be very short and sweet. The only fact we know with this one is that director Masaki Tezuka was given four different stories to choose from, but said they were all boring, and instead wrote his own overnight. This version was accepted and was used for the final film. As I talked about a little earlier, this was a direct sequel to Godzilla against Mechagodzilla, and kind of picks up where that one leaves off, so you know, we've got a damaged Kiryu from the fight with Godzilla. Godzilla's still out there. This is this movie. So it came out on December 13th, 2003, to a gross of 1.3 billion yen, so definitely diminishing returns at this point. This one was also double billed with a different Hamtaro movie, so that's something. Apparently that was the combination then, Hamtaro and Godzilla. It released in the U.S. on DVD in December of 2004. Like I said, this one was directed by Tezuka. It came out in 2003, it ran for 91 minutes, so again a shorter movie. Mothra and her fairies returned to Japan to warn mankind that they must return Kiryu to the sea, for the dead must not be disturbed. However, Godzilla has survived to menace Japan, leaving Kiryu as the nation's only defense. So the cool thing about this one is you have a returning actor from the original series and in some of those original, you know, Mothra movies, and I think he was in King Ghidorah and... Or not King Ghidorah, it would just been Ghidorah the three-headed monster and all that stuff. So that's cool to have a returning actor and a legacy character here. Basically got I think they're his grandchildren. I'm trying to remember now. I'm I'm trying to remember. But you have one younger kid and you have another guy who is a mechanic on Kiryu, so has very much ties to Mecha Godzilla. Well, remembering him, the Shobajin show up with Mothra to their house and are saying, like, hey, the only reason Mechagod- er, uh, the only reason Godzilla keeps coming back is because Kiryu, or Mecha Godzilla is still here. He just keeps coming back and destroying because of that, and they say, you need to decommission and return to the sea, Mechagodzilla, and Mothra will protect you in the future. So that's the whole setup of this one. The, um, the returning character here, he kind of has ties to the Prime Minister, so when he goes and says something to them, they listen to him, but... It's like, oh yeah, maybe we'll decommission him after Godzilla is defeated. We just can't leave our city defenseless, which I get to an extent, I and mean, especially because we have a battle early on where Mothra gets beaten pretty badly. We have the returning larva in this one, so we have a couple of Mothra larvae as we have in older ones. This is definitely a throwback in trying to pull back from past entries and try to give us that feeling again, and it. It pretty much works. I mean, it's pretty good. You've got, you know, our lead scientist guy, and he's, you know, the guy that works on Mechagodzilla. I wouldn't know if I'd say scientist, but he's a mechanic. He works on Mechagodzilla or Kiryu. He's very close with it, and he has kind of this rivalry. This is ah, this is neither here nor there. I mean, it's okay, but he has... There's a, you know, a woman pilot that he knows. There's also a pilot who's kind of cocky and arrogant and... They are kind of standoff with each other, but at the end, everything kind of gets resolved with those two as well. That's not spoiling anything, really. So that's the thing. You've got pretty much what we had before with different characters and some legacy characters. We're bringing back the Shobhajin, and we're bringing in Mothra. It's pretty good. It's nothing original or new or anything that's going to knock your socks off, but it's a pretty decent movie, and I would Recommend it, and especially if you're going to watch Godzilla against Mechagodzilla, you got to watch these back-to-back. As we're moving on, an interesting little fact here. In 2003, Tristar let their Godzilla trademark expire, and Toho began copywriting Zilla in reference to the 1998 creature. That will come into play in this next movie, Godzilla Final Wars. Godzilla Final Wars was a co-production between Japan, the US, Australia, and China, so a lot of hands in this one. You can almost kinda tell. I'll save my comment for later, but Ryuhei Kitamura agreed to direct the movie because he didn't like where the Heisei and Millennium Godzilla films took the series. He was on record as calling Final Wars the greatest hits album of Godzilla films. Yeah, I mean that's one way to- one way to put it. They used practical special effects like other Godzilla films, but took a shot at the American film by adding Zilla to the movie and making it fully CGI to show how bad it was in comparison. Now listen, I don't care how much you hate the 1998 version, the monster in 98 is far superior than what we get on the screen in this one. They are making fun of Zilla, and you can tell. The soundtrack even included a Sum 41 song, which is very weird, so you you get the sense that this is not necessarily, and it's a shame, this is the last traditional Godzilla film we got from Japan, And it doesn't really feel all that Japanese. It feels like there are a lot of hands in the pot. The movie released in Japan on December 4th of 2004. It had a budget of 1.9 billion and only made 1.2 billion yen. A bit of a disaster. It actually premiered in the US before then in November of 2004. Okay, let's set up Final Wars and talk about it. Came out in 2004, ran for 125 minutes... It is bloated. It is a very bloated movie. Humanity finally rids themselves of Godzilla, imprisoning him in an icy tomb at the South Pole. All is peaceful until various monsters emerge to lay waste to Earth's cities. Overwhelmed, humanity is seemingly saved by a race of benevolent aliens known as the Zillians. But not all is what seems with these bizarre visitors. If humanity wishes to survive, they must reluctantly resurrect their most hated enemy, Godzilla. So, this is a really cool idea. It really is. But what we get. Huh, so, let's talk about positives first. What we have with positives are we get the best looking versions of a lot of these kaiju that we have ever seen. I mean, we get a very good looking Angiris, we get a very good looking Gigan, we get some good looking redesigned kaiju. That's awesome. What we also get are super powered humans. And, let's be honest, the focus is mainly on them, fighting these aliens. These are, like, overpowered, you know, superhero humans. It's terrible. It's awful. All that stuff is terrible. Now, of the human elephants, I do like Don Fry in this, who's this submarine captain of this giant submarine. And, you know, he helped helped put Godzilla in ice once before, and he knows how to let him out. Very much this gruff, anti-establishment character, anti-command character, and he's in the military, but he's, uh, in this movie, he's kind of, I, I called him, I think, a Tom Selleck lookalike, and then friend Nathan Bartlebaugh was, you know, he was saying he kind of looks like Jesse Ventura mixed with Mario, like Super Mario, (laughs) so, interesting guy, you'll recognize him as someone else as soon as you see him, is the best way I can put it, but, uh, What happens with this one is we get these aliens essentially release all of these kaiju throughout the world and they start destroying the world and pretty much we're led to believe that there aren't very many people left in this world. It's basically the characters we're following are the only ones left alive or maybe the world are the only ones left in the military. I get confused on that. But the world's pretty much decimated at this point. So it's pretty bad. And they're just loose in these cities all over the world, destroying them. It's it's kind of where you get that sense of like, this was a co-production where everyone's getting in on the action. Ah, I don't know. the The main issue, and then, you know, we get this vignette of like Godzilla taking down all these monsters after they release him from ice. And that's basically what you get. I don't want to spend a lot of time in this movie because it is so bad. The monster stuff is good. The plot and all that is terrible. I do like the submarine captain. I do like him. I think he's a pretty stereotypical character, but I like him. There's just not a lot there. They focus way too much on the human element and the human element's bad. When we do get the kaiju stuff, it's pretty good and it's cool to see all these monsters together. Problem is, it's just not a great film. That's my opinion anyway. I would keep this one. I mean, you you're probably going to have to watch it once if you're going to watch all these Godzilla movies for sure. It's not as bad as some of the worst entries in the series, but I don't love it overall. That's my recommendation on that one. So we are done with the Millennium Era, and it's time to move on to what was called the Rewa Era. In between, because this one released in 2004, we wouldn't see another release until 2016. What happened? Well, Yoshimitsu Bono acquired the rights to make a 3D IMAX short Godzilla film you'll remember he was the director of Godzilla vs. Hedera. Now, this ultimately was taken over and made its way to Legendary in 2009, with Gareth Edwards set to direct the feature-length film. With Bono acquiring the rights and making this short film, it somehow spiraled out, never happened, Legendary picked it up, and the MonsterVerse was created. But, I mean, it took until 2014 until we got anything with the MonsterVerse. So, yes, Legendary got it in 2009, We don't see anything produced out of that until 2014. Now, I am not going to talk about the MonsterVerse yet because that series seems far from over, and it's just starting, but in December of 2014, Toho announced a new planned Godzilla film for 2016 after the success of Godzilla 2014. And that film would, of course, be Shin Godzilla. The contract they have with legendary didn't prevent them from making domestic releases, which is, you know, that's promising for the future. Hopefully, we do get some more in the future. I think we will, at some point, at least. They even put a team together called the Godzilla Conference to plan out any future installments. So, there's stuff in place there. Getting back to this one, Neon Genesis Evangelion creator Hideki Ano was approached in 2013 to direct a new Godzilla film. He rejected their offer as he was in a self-described depression after completing the most recent Evangelion movie. And who wouldn't be? I mean, because everyone is in an immediate depression after watching any Evangelion. His longtime friend and collaborator, Shinji Higuchi, convinced him to do it, and the two co-directed the movie. Ono would write the screenplay, and Higuchi handled the special effects part from their directing duties. So they both directed but Ano wrote the screenplay, Higuchi did special effects. Although they considered several different options for Godzilla, they decided on fully using CGI later. Shin Godzilla would release in Japan on July 29th, 2016. New World Cinemas was confused as being the U.S. distributors after a social media snafu, but they clarified that they were just fans and didn't have the rights. So they were not... They were, I think they were in that situation. They were just promoting the film. People thought they were pro- or distributing this thing in the U.S. False alarm. Who actually picked it up was Funimation, and they released it in theaters for the week of October 11th, 2016. So not very long to wait at all. The windows are definitely getting shorter. Demand was so high that they even had to add more screenings later on in October. In the U.K., Manga Entertainment released the film in theaters on August 10th, 2017, so unfortunately they had to wait about a year until they got it in the UK in theaters. It made $74.4 million domestically and was the second highest grossing domestic film of 2016. It made an additional $1.9 million from limited screens in North America, so not too shabby at all, considering it ran for, you know, a week and a few days in America. Okay, let's talk about this movie, and then we will talk about the future of the series. This was directed by Hideki Anno again, or co-directed by Anno. Came out in 2016, ran for two hours exactly. The tagline is important because I think it gets the feeling of the film. It is reality, Japan, versus fiction, Godzilla. When a massive guild monster emerges from the deep and tears through the city, the government scrambles to save its citizens. A ragtag team of volunteers cuts through a web of red tape to uncover the monster's weakness and its mysterious ties to a foreign superpower. But time is not on their side. The greatest catastrophe to ever befall the world is about to evolve right before their very eyes. So Shin Godzilla is... It's an acquired taste, as with anything that Anno directs. Evangelion is very divisive. For me, I like it in some aspects, and I don't in others. And we've got the same here. There's, it's almost like there's just a little bit too much Hideki Ano for me in this movie. Now, he's clearly taking a stab at the bureaucracy in Japan. And that part's pretty cool about how they weave in and out of that. And I think, I'm going to be honest with you, those original iterations of Godzilla freak me out. The fact that he's evolving and stuff through the movie, I don't like that. It, It creeps me out. It's not natural. I don't like it. But, I mean, it's still... A good solid movie underneath and I think when Godzilla reaches his apex form it's pretty cool and also you get a lot of destruction and death and this is probably the darkest Godzilla film we've ever gotten and it makes sense with who's in charge of it yeah at the end of the day this is just Godzilla destroying cities we're back to that again we have to go back to that every so often to reset things I think it's I think you know I think the character action here is really good I think all that stuff is good. I think when Godzilla starts doing Godzilla's thing and stops creeping me out, he's really good. So this is definitely one you can watch. And this is one where you don't have to know anything about Godzilla previously. So you could just jump into this one if you really wanted the newest Japanese version of Godzilla. But be forewarned, this is not a traditional Godzilla film. You're going to get a lot of trying to cut through bureaucratic red tape to solve problems and figure out how do we fix these issues. You've got a transforming Godzilla who doesn't necessarily start out as what you would picture him as. So there's a lot of weird stuff going on with this one. And yeah, we just have to deal with that. But I think Shin Godzilla is good. I know there are several people out there who love this movie. It's just uh, not to that level for me, mostly because of I can see Hideki Anno all over this thing and I have a mixed past with Anno. Yeah, there's there's that. It's neither here nor there. It's a good movie. I would recommend Shen Godzilla, absolutely. But, that brings us to where we are in the right now. There's no more Godzilla slated for now. Let's dig into what their plans are or could be. So, Toho had it in their contract that they couldn't make any new live-action Godzilla films until after 2020. They did produce an anime film trilogy with Polygon Pictures, which I haven't watched. I've heard mixed things on it, and I just could not get an end for this one, but... I think those are on Netflix if you want to watch those. It was announced instead of a sequel that they would create a shared universe with Evangelion, which I think we got with the last Evangelion movie, Kamen Rider, and Ultraman. With, you know, Shin Ultraman is set to be released, I think within a month or so of recording this. I think it's coming out in October in the US. So that's their next take. I'll be interested to see that one, especially since I haven't watched any Ultraman before. But that's the plan to create this shared universe with all of these kaiju. A sequel was initially put together in 2016 by Anno, going under the working title of, wait for it, Shin Godzilla's Counter-Attack. It ultimately didn't amount to anything, though. That's where we're at. We're getting Shin Ultraman this year. Hopefully, there's more Shin Godzilla. Hopefully, there's like a, a crossover between Ultraman and Godzilla and all that stuff coming forward. But we won't know until we get there. I mean, the future seems like there's... Wiggle room for some more Godzilla. I sure hope that the legendary movies aren't all we get in the future because I really do miss that Japanese centric Godzilla stuff. But Shin Godzilla just wasn't it for me. That's not a classic kaiju movie. Whether or not it's a good film is irrelevant. It's just not scratching that itch that I need. I would love to see some Godzilla movies, maybe a series where we bring back a lot of the old monsters. That's probably way too expensive for what you'd get out of it. But I don't know. I'd love to see the monsters return. I'd love to see some classics come back like Anguirus and, you know, all that stuff. So we'll have to wait and see. And of course, King Caesar, uh, we'll just have to wait and see what comes out of this and see if anything comes out of this. All right. I did mention I was going to talk a little bit about some other media within Godzilla. Now, I mentioned on the first episode of this watching the 1979 Godzilla show from Hanna-Barbera. And I did like that as a kid, I could see, you know, there weren't any other kaiju that tied in from Toho. It was just a weird-looking Godzilla and a Godzuki against some other weird monsters. But I did have a couple things I wanted to say on this one before we move on. This was, again, put together by Henry Saperstein, so our old friend was back. He was friends with Joseph Barbera, and Barbera was tasked with coming up with new ideas and characters for TV shows. He ultimately wanted to work with Godzilla so he contacted Saperstein to try to help it happen. At some point, a network exec got involved and asked them to give the show a lighter tone, which led to the character of Godzuki, who was type of a son of Godzilla. So it's always the network execs and it's always the executives that make things bad, right? Barbaris said of the show that it was light on violence and strayed from the source because standards and practices told them They couldn't have fire, shot at anyone, and that no cars or buildings could be smashed. This led to a neutered show, which he called "Okay." He said, kids really liked Godzuki. So, it doesn't seem like Barbera was necessarily happy with this either, because he wanted Godzilla, he didn't get it. I think that's the same thing that happened in 98, with Emmerich doing what he did to that movie. That ran for 26 episodes over two seasons, and then we had a couple of other... Godzilla series there's a Godzilla the animated series based off the 1998 movie and I do remember watching that one as a kid don't remember much about it I do remember the lead what the lead character looked like and I remember the logo and all that stuff but that's about all I remember on that one not a whole lot to say then recently there was an anime put out called Godzilla singular point which it's all right it's cool to have Jet Jaguar feel like a decent character for once in that one but the main thing about that is there's just a lot of techno babble going on, and yeah, you get lost in some of their technical talk. They get really into the science. So that ran for a season so far, I think 12 episodes, maybe 13. But that's, that's definitely worth checking out if you've got some time on your hands. So that's going to do it. We are all caught up with the Japanese side of Godzilla. Now I do have a few things before we go. At the time of this recording, we are winding down the kaiju battle that's going over on Twitter and Facebook. It's going to get heated, I think, here, at least this round or the next, because we're down to eight kaiju, and they'll be battling it out over the next couple weeks to see who the audience thinks is the best kaiju. You can always hit me up on social media, leave a voicemail, send an email telling me who your favorite kaiju are, and there's a good chance I would include that on a future show when we're talking about, you know, favorite kaiju. I do want to shout out really quick that and I sorry I forgot to mention this because I think it got we recorded and it came out so quickly afterward. But I was over on the Monsters and the Mosh Pit podcast with Greg Bazellian. and he invited myself and Nathan Bartlebaugh to come over and talk about Nope. So we give a full-on spoiler review of Nope and talk about it and give our thoughts on it and everything like that. And if you get a chance, go check that out, please. We had a lot of fun talking about Nope. And, you know, Monsters in the Mosh Pit is an underrated show. I feel like if you're into heavy metal and horror movies, it's pretty cool to hear those guys talk about it. Definitely go and check them out. And I will link that episode in the show notes. If I had already plugged this, whatever, I'm plugging it again. But, (laughs) and as far as other podcasts, I also am on the Phantom Video podcast with, you know, Nathan Bartlebaugh and Dave Becker. We should have our episode two coming out soon if it's not out already. And that is more of like the physical media aspect of movies in general, not just horror movies. I also did a recent guest spot on Father and Son Watch Horror with Jackson and Matt and Willis Wheeler talking about Hellraiser. So keep an eye out for that one coming out. As far as the future of the podcast, in October, I will be doing some episodes on Giallo. That will be the next topic. So, we've got one more proper episode in the Kaiju series where I'm going to clean up some other Toho Kaiju films and just some odds and ends of Kaiju films that we'll talk about. And then we're going to dive full in to Giallo's. What I need from you, I'm looking to... In addition to my own thoughts and history and all that stuff about the Giallo, I am looking to add a bunch of audience participation seeing as this is October and get the community involved and really talk about Giallo and why you love it. And you know, it can be you can mention anything you want, anything from what are some of your favorites, talk about a specific film. If you're watching a Giallo for the first time, if you're watching any Giallo for the first time, I want to hear about it. So You can either, you know, send a recording over to the email address at ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com, or you can call in and leave a voicemail through Google Voice, and that number is 740-297-6556. And, yeah, I really would love to hear from all of you Giallo fans out there and get you put into the episodes. At some point, they're kind of kind of be weaved in and out. If you're a fan of Land of the Creeps, you probably already know how that works, and that's what I'm looking for for these episodes. I mean, you can call in that number anytime and talk about anything you want, really, and I'll put it on the show and address it, but this one I want to be special, and I've already got one pretty awesome recording that has come in so far from some other podcasters, and I can't wait to hear more and hear more people call in. So, yeah, if you are so inclined, uh, please get that in, and I'm probably wrap those up about I mean I can probably fit them in if you get them to me by the first couple weeks of October I'll get them in somehow so that's about it for this one I had a lot of fun going through this era of Godzilla films and I will be back to talk about some more Toho Kaiju films and some other gems here and there Um, you can find the podcast over at Screaming Ages on Twitter you can hit up the Facebook group over on there, it's just screaming through the ages. Uh, the website for now is hosting all the episodes. I haven't really done anything else with the website for a while, and I'm thinking about defaulting to my podcast, my podcast distributors version of my website. Let me know if you would really miss that website over there. I don't think anyone would. You'd still have access to be able to get into all the episodes, it would just be through my the you know the domain would change and it would be through my podcast provider, my podcast hoster. So just let me know if you have strong feelings about the website, I think the comments sections have been broken for a while now, so I don't even have that functionality and I'm not sure how to fix it. Anyway, if you have strong feelings on that one way or the other, let me know. You can send an email at screaming at yahoo.com and you can leave a voicemail like I said earlier. With that being said, keep your eyes on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson.